0: Great to see everyone today. Welcome to Redeemer Church. So excited that you're with us as we continue in the book of Joshua through our sermon series, Be Strong in the Lord, and hopefully you were blessed by Travis's message last week as he concluded uh, chapter 1 and today we jump into chapter 2 and yet on the verge, on the cusp of yet another reconnaissance mission. And so if we remember, we first heard of Joshua in Exodus 17 and this is where Moses, he charges him to, to go out into battle and to defeat the uh, Amalekites. And, but he really comes into the fold in Numbers 13. Where Joshua is one of the 12 spies that are sent out to uh, assess the promised land. To to go out into the promised land and to bring back a report. And so if we remember, uh, Moses sent out 12 spies and, and Joshua was one of them. And he and another spy, Caleb were the only two that came back and gave this report that they indeed should go into the promised land and take the land as they were commanded to do. But the other ten spies, they actually led a revolt, and this revolt was against Moses and Aaron, and as a result, as a consequence the Israelites had to spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And so uh, this wasn't uh, a good thing. And so now here we see Joshua at the conclusion of these 40 years and if we recall from Joshua chapter 1, he is given this charge to be strong and courageous. Four times he is told by the Lord to be strong and courageous as they enter into the promised land and to take the land. So Joshua, like a good military leader, he, he has his own uh, special ops position here that he's going to send these two spies not 12 because 12 didn't work out well last time so he only sends sends two spies into the land to really uh, assess what is taking place there and, and so but he's given these marching orders to be strong and courageous and then he's also specifically told this he's told by God every place that the sole of your foot Will tread upon. I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And so, what this does is it sets the stage for the Israelites' conquest into the Promised Land. And so, as we can see from this map, we could see that they are uh, encamped at this city called Shittim, and they're to cross over the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. But on the other side of that river is an outpost city known as Jericho. Now, it wasn't a very large city, but it was a very fortified city because it was the first city that was there after they crossed over there. So this is what was preventing them to really take and walk in and go into the promised land. If they were to get a foothold in this way and fashion, this would really pave the way. But they had to go through this very fortified city. So Joshua sends these spies not to assess if they are going to attack the city of Jericho, but how and when. And so, so this is kind of the narrative the, the, of the backdrop, the backdrop of the narrative that we arrive at today. But it's only the backdrop. Uh, truly the, the centerpiece, the focal point, uh, the main event. The beauty of our passage today really centers around a woman, a woman by the name of Rahab. And the most unlikely of individuals that the Lord uh, would appoint to uh, allow his divine uh, process, uh, his, his divine plans to uh, allow this divine judgment for the city of Jericho. But this life of Rahab, we know from Scripture that she was a prostitute, a, a harlot. And so the story of Rahab, the story of Joshua too, is really allowing us to see how the Lord uh, takes this prostitute and turns her into a princess and how the lord takes rahab who led a life of shame and allows her to be set apart and placed into the hall of fame the hall of faith as we'll later see in hebrews 11 it is how uh, the lord chose what is what is weak in this world to shame the strong how the lord chose what is foolish in the world To shame the wise, how the Lord chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring the to nothing the things that are, as we know from First Corinthians 27 and 28. And so, even though we see here in Joshua, uh, the Lord is talking and, and sharing how the Israelites are to take over the land. But what actually takes place in Joshua chapter 2 in the story of Rahab? He puts a pause on this conquest of the land and allows us to see this beautiful story and how the Lord takes what is low and despised in this world to show off his glory. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to go ahead and jump into this very significant story as far as um, what the Lord has for us. And so. so in Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went out and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. But the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there's no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go on your way the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out into the door's of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless, and with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she went away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord. In the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there uh, three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that had, had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given us all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us let's go to the lord in prayer and just ask him to bless our time together lord we humbly come before you today with this story of rahab the most unlikely of heroes and god this is a, a picture of of how you use just empty cisterns earthen vessels jars of clay and that you fill them with your surpassing power to bring your name much glory, to bring your name much honor and majesty. And God, as we look at the story of Rahab, may we see that it is through her faith, it is through her faith that propels us into these magnificent things that you did through her life that are spoken of some 3,500 years later. God, may we also see that there is nothing that we could give and contribute of great accord, but, but it is through your power working through us, Lord, that we're able to see you work in magnificent fashion. God, may you always receive all the praise and all the glory. And God, bless our time together. Amen. So if you remember, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when Jumping into the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua sometimes isn't the most pleasant of books. We, we could see kind of a, a same overarching theme when we're talking about books such as Judges and First and Second Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. We see this desolation. We see destruction that takes place with those that are disobedient uh, to God. And, and we see this in, in Joshua. And in today's passage, we also see Just the fallen depravity of this world in which we live in. We see the story of Rahab. Some commentators would actually uh, take this story in order to soften it or make it a little bit more palatable. Uh, They would say that Rahab was not uh, a prostitute. She was actually an innkeeper. Uh, But we could see that throughout scripture because Rahab's name is mentioned three times in the New uh, Testament. We see in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25 that this isn't what is spoken of when Rahab's name is mentioned. And so we're going to talk about Rahab and talk about these five points about her story and um, her life. And the first one is the profession of Rahab. Because when we see Rahab in the New Testament, those two of those three times, the word used to describe her immediately after her name is mentioned is the Greek word porne. And this is where we would arrive at the word pornography. And it's translated in the New Testament and right here as prostitute. And so this is significant because this is the person that the Lord chooses to allow his divine purposes and his divine judgment to take place on the city of Jericho. You would think that if the Lord were to pick a person, that it would be some high-standing person. Official or uh, someone that was revered in the city or, or, or someone, you know, that was righteous in the Lord's eyes. But this is not the case. Uh, the Lord chose a prostitute. And this is truly, according to 1 Corinthians, God choosing what is low and despised in this world. And it's very important to identify as well because many of us would probably have the question when reading this passage of scripture, if these two spies sent by Joshua were to be godly men, trusted men of Joshua, why would they attend the house of a prostitute, the house of Rahab? And that's a very significant question. Oftentimes people would like to say, you know, well, That's not something good that they did, but I think it's important to see what was said. It's stated that the two men lodged there. Because we see other instances throughout the Old Testament where an individual had relations with a prostitute. And they used a little bit more colorful language. And so we wouldn't want to put anything into scripture that isn't there. So we can arrive at the fact that these two spies were there for reconnaissance uh, purposes, strategic reasons as far as taking the city. Now, they wouldn't go into the middle of town square and start asking questions because people in the city had seen these two Israelite men come into the city. And so they actually went to this place where it does say that it was an inn as well. So this would more than likely be a place such as a tavern that frequently travelers and sojourners would go through there to get information as far as what was going on. So it was somewhat inconspicuous as far as them going to this house of Rahab. Also, it was in the city walls, and so this would, by the gate, it says, so this would be a good escape route in case they got into some hot water. And so this is just kind of a a little bit of background. Any questions that you might have when reading through this, like how could these trusted men go to a house of a prostitute? And so so that's really kind of who Rahab was. Uh, We're not sugarcoating anything here, uh, because this is specifically, it it talks about who Rahab was. But more importantly, we're going to step into what Rahab did and that's our second point uh, the guile the guile of Rahab so the, the king sees these two Israelite men come into the city he, he sends some men to investigate and they arrive at Rahab's house and they uh, demand to see these men well how does Rahab respond well he she says two things uh, she says that the spies are not here and then number two uh, she states that they have left the city. But indeed, in fact, she was hiding them on her rooftop in the midst of harvest flax. And so here's a a picture of a harvested flax field just so you could kind of get an idea. It would be easy if she had much of that on her roof, um, that it would be easy for um, her to go ahead and hide those spies there. Now, I know what you guys are thinking, You're like flaxseed, like isn't that all the raids, flaxseed oil and what have you, omega-3s, right, and you're good for your digestive health, right? And so if you didn't know that, that nutritional counseling, that's for free, folks. So, but, but this specific order of events in the life of Rahab actually brings up a question for many as they read the story. It brings up a a situation as far as morality and ethics. Is this passage actually saying that it's okay to lie? Is this passage actually saying that it's okay to break uh, the ninth commandment, that you you shall not bear false witness? And this is why the word guile was used, which means sly or cunning intelligence. And so I easily could have said the lies of Rahab. And so, so, there's a couple of ways that you could look at this and a couple of uh, stances that you could take. And uh, I would say, first and foremost, this, this text isn't uh, to be used as an example or a license to lie or twist the truth. Uh, we have to remember that we are redeemed followers of Jesus that are striving after holiness and, and godliness. But we also have to remember that Rahab, she was a pagan. Canaanite non-Jew who was in a pretty shady line of work and so lying probably became second nature for her because it was something that she probably regularly had to step into to cover up tracks or what have you but I would say this. Dutiful lying is not something that is condoned by God, but also in extreme cases such as this, we don't see where Rahab's lies, the lies of Rahab were censured or that she was admonished for them in Scripture. For example, what happens if you are visiting a persecuted country and you're trying to smuggle Bibles across the border? There would have to be some twisting of the truth. Or what happens if you're trying to save the life of someone in an extreme circumstance and, and you would have to tell a lie? You know, I remember when I went to India a while back and um, I had to tell everyone I was a physical therapist and I wasn't doing any physical therapy over there. I mean, it would have been good. There's a lot of people that needed help. But, but I had to tell, I couldn't tell anybody that I was a pastor. I had to tell them that I was a physical therapist in order to get into the country. So there's a little bit twisting the truth there. And I, I think a, an example that many of us would think of when it comes to this situation would be the story of Corey Tenboom Boom and how in her book, The Hiding Place, how she was hiding Jews so they, they would not uh, be sent to the concentration camps during the Nazi occupation. And, and so she sa- shares a story. I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly, how they're in their house and then all of the sudden, Her two nephews come barging through the doors, and why were they barging through the doors? Because these German police officers, these Nazis, were hot on their trail, and they came barging into the door, and what did they do? They hid the two nephews, the two young men, into the potato cellar that was immediately under the kitchen table, okay? So... Uh, The the police found out where they were going, where they were from, and they come barging into the door with their guns leveled, ready to really take these guys out. And so they interrogate the family, and the little niece, she drops her teacup, and as she's picking up the pieces off the floor, the police officer grabs her and demands, tell me where your brothers are at. And, And what does the little niece do? She says, why they're under the table. And the German police, they thought that she was mocking them because they pulled back the tablecloth and no one was there. So they stormed out of there thinking that this little girl was mocking them. But indeed, the little girl was telling the truth because they were under the table. They were just hidden from plain sight. So we could say that in a situation like this, and this will maybe get your wheels turning a little bit, in the case of Rahab, if Rahab would have told the truth, could the Lord in his sovereignty and his uh, divine providence, could he have provided a way of escape in the midst of these extreme unforeseen circumstances? And, and so we might say in these circumstances that we might have to choose the lesser of two evils for the greater good of man, or for the greater good of God's purposes. And that in this instance, the Lord would be gracious. Hence the word guile, sly or cunning intelligence. Again, we don't see that Rahab was censured or admonished for telling these lies throughout scripture. But to really kind of put a game set match onto this, to conclude the discussion, and we could talk about this in the lobby, I don't believe the Lord would ever call us to break one of his commandments or go against one of his attributes. As we see in Titus 1, 2, that the Lord does not lie. And in John 17, 17, his word is truth. And so lying, I would say, maybe in some unforeseen extreme circumstances, should always be avoided. Because what this is saying, the Lord in his sovereignty, he he's not reduced to unholy acts to allow his purposes and his will uh, to be fulfilled so a mild rabbit trail but I think it deserves a a quick conversation and answer here in the story of Rahab but truly really what we need to lean into is is this why why did Rahab go to great lengths to hide these spies because if Rahab would have been caught well, she undoubtedly would have been executed. And not only herself, but more than likely her entire family. And so, uh, so she went to great lengths to uh, really aid and abet these spies. And so she put her life in, in the hands of, of the king. And so, so in the midst of great peril, in the midst of great risks, what we see is Rahab's great faith, her great faith. A faith that would be remembered for generations upon generations to come. And so that's point number three, the faith of Rahab. She states this, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. This is of great significance because she was not a Jew. She was a pagan Canaanite. But she had heard of these conquests of the Israelites. And she and her people had abandoned all hope. It states our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man. And she did not say at the beginning of this passage in verse 9. She, just, she didn't say, I think that the Lord has given you the land. She did not say, it appears that the Lord has given you the land. She says, I know. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And this leads Rahab to make this profession of faith to these two spies in verse 11. What does she say? For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And this is a very significant profession of faith. And we're really going to lean into the substance and essence of this. Why? Because Rahab, she did not see all of these things that had taken place in the past. She was not there when all the deaths took place. uh, When when the Israelites put the the blood of the lambs uh, over the doorway. She was not there when the ten plagues hit all the people. She was not there when they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. She was not there for the desolation of the Amorite kings. She was not there to witness the the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. She was not there to witness any of those things. Rahab, she did not see, but she still believed. And many see and do not believe. Right? Many seen do not believe, but Rahab believed in which she did not see. And isn't this the story of our faith? What are we told in Hebrews 11.1 1, as the definition of faith? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so often isn't this where we arrive as as, as Christians, we, we say, Lord, I need a sign. I need you to tell me this. I, I need you to make it abundantly clear. But so oftentimes, God has made it abundantly clear. He's been telling us all along. We just have to have the faith that he said he's going to do what he said he's going to do. We, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks with memorial stones. So easily we forget. So easily we forget of the Lord's faithfulness and how he delivered us and, and carried us and, and showed us the way. But we get to this place, it's like we need to see the Lord show up again instead of looking back on everything that he's already done. And Rahab here, this is the epitome of having the faith, the conviction of things not seen. She had not witnessed any of those things, and here we see her make this profession of faith. And it was this conviction of things not seen that justified Rahab. And it was this great faith, it was this great faith which led to great works. And this is our next point. The works of Rahab. Rahab stepped into these significant actions. She, by faith, protected the spies and allowed them to report back to Joshua about the city. Rahab by faith displayed the scarlet cord outside of her window. Rahab, by faith, made a covenant with the spies which allowed her entire family to be spared. This was very significant. She states, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab, she saved her entire family from death. And it was through these actions of Rahab that were based on this rich, great faith of Rahab that serve as validation and justification of her faith. And what do I mean by that? Well, obviously we would ascribe to Ephesians 2.8, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one may boast. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. These are the things that we would ascribe to, but what are we told by James and James 2. Well, we're told that faith, faith without works is what? Dead, right? We're told faith without works is dead. In James 2.18, he goes on and says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says, show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. And who does James use as an example of works here that serve as validation and justification of faith? Well, none other than Rahab. And in the same way, James 2.25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So, This is, you know, I know it's a very loaded thing to drop. We could have the faith and works conversation until the cows come home. But all of these things, James specifically uses Rahab as this example of great works. The great works of Rahab that allowed this justification of her faith. So we look at all these things. All of these things, the profession of Rahab. The, the, the guile of Rahab, the faith of Rahab, the works of Rahab, and they lead us to this beautiful, God-glorifying final point, and that is the legacy of Rahab. The legacy of Rahab. Where did we start things out today? We said God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not To bring to nothing the things that are. God chose Rahab to powerfully work through. So much so that 3,500 years later we're preaching messages on Rahab. Her her name is mentioned among the greats of God's word. We, We find that Rahab was taken from the hall of shame. And she was taken to the hall of faith. One of the most significant places that we see in God's word of these men and women of great faith. We see the name of Rahab. We see Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Barak, Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And in the midst of all of those amazing names, we see the name Rahab nestled right in the middle of it. Hebrews eleven thirty one, 31, she actually gets a whole verse all to herself. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And there's more of much greater significance. Rahab, Rahab, we find her name in the lineage of none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Rahab, she married a Jewish man by the name of Solomon. And many of you guys know where I'm going with this, that have studied this passage. And, uh, you know, lore would say that maybe Solomon was one of the the two spies. I I don't know, but I read a couple of things on that. But, But she meets this man, Solomon, and they have a child. And what was the name of that child? Boaz. And who is Boaz? Well, Boaz met Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Ruth's redeemer, and they have a child, and this child's name is Obed, and Obed has a child, and uh, and this this person's name is Jesse, and who is Jesse the father of? Jesse's the father of King David. Matthew 1, 5, and 6, when it talks about at great length the lineage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. So just as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this rich lineage of faith with Lois and Eunice and and Timothy, we see right here that Rahab was a great great-grandmother of none other than King David. And why is this important? Why is this significant? Because it is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy because as we were told in Isaiah 11.1 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the chapter goes on talking about this Messianic fulfillment of Jesse of Jesus Christ and so this is of great significance. You see No one was in greater need of redemption than Rahab. We have a non-Jew, Canaanite, pagan, prostitute. And the Lord chose her. The Lord chose her to do these magnificent things. This was an individual that broke every Mosaic law out there. But she received the grace of God. And the thing about Rahab, she's no different than any of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. It is all equal footing. It is all equal ground at the foot of the cross. Rahab wasn't too far from the radical transformation that took place and often some of us, we think, oh, what we've done or what we're currently doing, that separation is just significant enough to say that the Lord doesn't care about me. I'm not good enough to be in his presence. Or some may take the other end of the spectrum and say, hey, I've got all this stuff. And it's really, I'm such a good person, it's not in need of the grace of God. But this is really where it comes home and resonates with all of us. There is no sin Beyond the grace of God. There's nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of Christ. And there is no sin that doesn't require the grace of God. We are all beggars in need of bread. And the Lord's blood was shed. It was shed so that we could be set free. Rahab believed. She placed her faith in God. For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. She placed her faith in the scarlet cord. She put that scarlet cord outside of her window without hesitation, without scratching her head thinking about it, without delay, with full faith, with full assurance, knowing that I know this is what you have for me, God. And there is no coincidence that this cord placed outside of her window was scarlet in nature. William Graham Scroggie, who is a pastor at Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, states this, Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. And What are we told in Hebrews 9.22? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. From the Israelites, Placing the blood at the first Passover around the doorposts, so that their firstborn may be saved. From the scarlet cord that Rahab put out there to, to, for her salvation from, from the Israelites and their, her entire family. To the shed blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. Look at how the Lord used Rahab. He took a lost soul, the worst, low and despised, and he redeemed her. And isn't that what the Lord does with us? Through his blood, wretched sinners, all the things that we've done, we've been redeemed. He has set us apart, called us his own through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we take communion. And wherever you're at, maybe you're at this place like, man, this is a lot. Huh? Like, I feel like a Rahab. Well, here's the thing. We should all feel like a Rahab. Because the Lord has delivered us, each and every one of us, from the depravity of our sin nature, and He's delivered us into His glory, and for that we rejoice. And so, as we take communion, ushers, you could go ahead and come down. We're going to take some time to celebrate the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're at a place today where you really need to lean into this communion time. Take some time to Really think about, examine, confess, repent. Take some time to allow the story of Rahab to resonate with with us. Say, wow, Lord, you took what was low and despised in this world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And God, you have done the same thing with us. You have delivered us, and now we sit with you in all your glory. Let's pray. Lord, allow the story of Rahab to just resonate with us. Allow your word to do a work. God, we ask that. It doesn't just come in one ear out the other. God, allow, allow us to see your, your goodness, your grace for us. God, allow our faith to be emboldened. Allow us to believe in the things that we do not see. God, allow us to just be propelled into one degree of glory to another. God, allow us to take the time always, regularly, regularly, to see what we've been delivered from. God, it is through your shed blood that we have life. God, it is through your word that we could see stories such as this, that are types or or copies, the scarlet cord of Rahab, Lord, that is to look and point towards the shed blood of Christ at Calvary. So God, allow us to step into these things on this day. Amen.